Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, and before we get to looking at the passage, you heard it read a little bit before, and I'm going to read each section as we go through it. But I wanted to highlight something that I'm sure you've probably already noticed in the book of Ephesians, but I think it's worth mentioning right at the beginning. Um, we are currently two chapters into the book of Ephesians. And if you've been following closely, you will notice that at this point, Paul, in writing his letter to his friends and describing everything in Ephesians, has never once, up to this point, and still continues through this whole morning, never telling the people of Ephesus one thing to do. You notice that, right? He's so far said nothing that we're supposed to do. In fact, he goes all the way through the end of chapter 3 and never once tells anybody something to do. In fact, he simply says to them, this is who you are in the new reality of Christ. That you are blessed and adopted and redeemed and chosen and forgiven and included and you are marked with the Spirit and you are sealed with the Spirit and you are alive and you've been raised up. And he keeps going on and on and on. And he says, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is how God sees you. This is why you're deeply loved. This is why you've been chosen. Uh, this is what God has done for you. And this is how the Spirit dwells within you. And I mean, it's some of the most unbelievable statements we've covered over these uh, last few weeks. And um, I think it's really important. This is the reason I bring it up. Because it's important for us to remember that first and foremost, the announcement of who you are in Jesus is about who you are and not about what you do, right? It's about how you're loved. It's about the new realities about you. It's your identity in Christ. It's all of those things, right? And not about what you do. In fact, it has been said this. If you start with instructions and commands, people might be mistaken into thinking that God loves us because of what we do or how religious or moral or good we are. That's not gospel. Gospel is the announcement of who God insists you are now because of Christ. You're a child of God, not because of how great you are, but because God has all kinds of kids and you're one of them. But if you tell people who they are, who their best selves are, if you remind them of their true identity, there's a good chance they'll know what to do as they live out that good news. And today is just a further statement of that, that we are looking at who you are. We're looking at how we've been defined and described, and today is just about identity stuff, right? You're not going to hear another statement of what to do. You're just simply going to be able to bask in who you are. And there's uh, three words that I kind of want to look at this morning. Uh, they are the words separate, oneness, and temple. We're going to kind of look at the passage through that lens, separate oneness and temple. And if you have your Bible, starting in Ephesians 2, verse 11, he describes this idea of separate, uh, specifically vertically separate. He says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He starts out in a really cheery fashion here at the beginning, right? 
that, listen, you have a vertical separation from God is what he's describing. And he lists it like this. Separated from Christ, alienated, strangers to the covenant, having no hope, and without God. That's strong words. But then he comes back with this verse. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Last week, we talked about this very idea. And Kevin spoke to the idea of the big butts, right? But Jesus, right? And this whole section is saying, hey, you were all those things, but now in Jesus, it's different. You had a disconnect between God and you. There was this vertical separation. You were not reconciled, but now you are in Christ reconciled. That you have a relationship with God. And so he defines right away that, listen, you used to be, but, but no longer. Uh, Jesus has changed that for you. But anywhere there's a vertical separation from God, we also know there's always a horizontal separation from God. Or a separation from others. And so he goes on to say this, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So what Paul is doing is he's speaking right here at the beginning to this horizontal divide among people. And specifically speaking to the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it would not take much study on our part or much stretch of the imagination to understand the countless separation between first century Jews and Gentiles. I mean, there was so much ethnic, national, cultural, and religious divides that, that separated them uh, that makes our divisiveness today seem rather amateur. I mean, they were so divided, so broken, they had fundamental, deep-seated, ingrained divisions. They, in many ways, were in hate with one another. It was this uh, radical uh, division. And today, we don't have necessarily the Jew and Gentile division in the same way. We have right and left. We have orthodox and progressive. We have mainline and evangelical. We have blue and red. We have donkey and elephant. We have black and white. We have haves and have-nots. We have all of that and more. If you start to look on the landscape of divisions, we have divisions in tradition, in class, in color, and nationality, and sexuality, and gender. I mean, the list can go on and on. We have division. And where we tend to major on division, the difference in some ways is it's not just cultural, it's not just relational, it's also theological. And if, uh, if I had to be honest, that's probably the hardest of all of them to overcome for some reason. Now, you have all these divisions in life, but it seems that when it comes to theological, we... We like to start there for some reason within the church. And so, I mean, I've seen friendships of decades just vanish at the idea of secondary issues within the church. 
In fact, uh, just a couple days ago, I was sitting at a cafe. I just got done meeting with Kevin, and um, I was working, shooting off some emails, and then trying to get to the talk. And uh, I was sitting down, and then next to me there was an empty table, and then next to that was uh, this, these two ladies. And they were having a really beautiful conversation. Uh, they were looking at the Bible. They were talking about uh, faith and some of those things. And a man sat down kind of in between us. And uh, he overheard their conversation. He'd been sitting there for a while and, and just kind of overheard their conversation and wanted to affirm their their time together. And so he's like, oh, it's really cool that you guys are meeting. And then he just said really simply, he goes, I just, I'm actually in awe of the fact that God loves us, that billions of years ago he created the earth and he, and he like um, did all these amazing things and he thought of us and he loves us enough that, that he made us have a relationship with him and it's really just so cool. And I just wanted to kind of affirm, that's what he said, right? Something along those lines. And uh, the one lady looked back at him and simply said this. Uh, well, I, I believe in a literal six days of creation. And I went like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, is that where we're starting in this conversation? And he's simply describing the beauty of God's love and overwhelming capacity to know us and that he created everything. And like, we start with division? Is that what we do? And it, and it blows me away how often we start with division. We start with, well, you think it's that, but I think it's this. And uh, in this text, there is deep division. Right away you see it in the text. They're fighting about circumcision. They're fighting about the theology around the foreskin on male anatomy. This is what they're fighting about. Today we just go, eh, whatever. Right? It's true. But it was, it was a major issue of division. Not only that, they were fighting about food sacrificed to idols. Do you eat it? Do you not eat it? If it's been in pagan worship, do you, if it's been in the temple at all, do you just forego it or do you eat it? They were fighting about leadership. Do we follow the eloquence of Apollos or do we follow the, the strong leadership of Paul and his intelligence? And they were divided. They were fighting about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Like, man, did the resurrection really happen? And was it literal? And was it figurative? And uh, all kinds of division, division, division. And the church has always been about division, it seems. Right? Not only did the East split from the West, and then the West split again, and then we fractured about 33,000 times. Right? Besides that, even, we have fought about what you can do on the Sabbath and what you can't do on the Sabbath. We did that for years, we fought about that. We fought about what songs you can sing at the service and what instruments you can even use. Growing up, it was like, man, you can't use that one, you know? We have fought about the version of the Bible to use. I remember uh, I was a sophomore, no, junior in college, and I went and spoke at a church in Kentucky. And uh, I delivered the talk, and um, it, was, it was like a Sunday evening. There's probably like five, 600 people there. I get done with the talk. First person comes up and he goes, hey, I noticed you used the NIV Bible. Can you explain why you did? And I was like, well, maybe not. Let's not have that conversation. <laughs> right? We, we fight about and have in the past speaking in tongues and the use of gifts. We fought about dogma, what should be in and what should be secondary. We fought about divorce and remarriage. Can you, can you not? We have, I think we're poised to keep fighting in the church. I remember... Uh, the I was at in Indiana for a while. 
uh, the, one of the concerns that came up is there were undocumented workers in our uh, town. And they started coming to church. Not only that, they trusted Christ. Then, oddly enough, they decided they wanted to get baptized. And we simply said, no, you can't be baptized and you can't be members because you're undocumented. Uh, hold on. I think the kingdom of God is above the nation. Uh, that's my take. I could be wrong. I'm fairly young. But it seemed the way we should go. Well, obviously, I was wrong. Division, right? It, it happened. We are poised for more of it when it comes to sexuality and gender and race. I mean, it's, we're just, we're, we like it for some reason. But the big difference, if you consider the difference between the severity of the interaction back then with now, is uh, they were much more severe with it. Today, we just do this. We're like, oh, you think something different? That's fine. I'll go start another church over here. Oh, you think something different? That's fine. I'm just going to go somewhere else, right? That's how we divide now. Back then, it was a little bit different. In the time of Paul, um, recently some archaeologists found a stone with this special encryption. And uh, it was on the wall that marked where the Jews were allowed to go into the temple and where the Gentiles were supposed to stay out. And on the placard, it said this warning. No man of another race is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will only have himself to thank for the death which follows. They were pretty serious about their division. I mean, that's, that seems shocking to us, but that's how strong the divisiveness was. And what Paul says is that Jesus broke all of that. He broke all the vision. Whatever sense of difference you feel in someone else, the evidence of God and the evidence of the gospel being true is the fact that Gentiles and Jews will be in the same church worshiping together. And people will see that and be amazed. People will recognize that and go, something different is happening here because people are one. People are loving each other. People are on equal footing there's no division between groups of people. I've got a, a weird illustration to describe this, so bear with me for a moment, because it might not make sense, but my hope is that it will at the end. A few years ago, I um, had the opportunity of buying a couple tickets to the NCAA men's basketball tournament that was downtown here at the arena. And uh, I had for years thought, man, it'd be so cool to go to uh, the tournament and then to know it was in Spokane and then I could get a ticket. And I was like, oh, man, this is really cool. And so um, I bought two tickets and uh, like way up in the nosebleed section, you know, like bring some binoculars and see those little specks kind of running around on the court with a ball. It'll be amazing. And uh, now I acknowledge that even being the arena was a place of privilege, okay? There were a lot of people that didn't get in, a lot of people that didn't get tickets, a lot of people that couldn't afford that. Um, but I was in, and uh, it was a great opportunity. And so I invited a friend to join, and I'm not going to describe as the rest of the story can only, be, uh, only implicate myself, okay? So uh, we're sitting in the 400 section, okay? We're like at the top of the top. And uh, we sit down at our seats, and there are multiple seats between us and, like, the 300 section that are completely unoccupied, right? So we're thinking to ourselves, well, I mean, let's just slide down a little bit in the 400 section, right? 
and we can sit. So what we did, we slid down to the edge of the 400 section, and we're talking, and we're like partway into the first quarter, and we're like, this is pretty amazing. This is cool, kind of a lifetime experience. But you start to notice right away, like, there are the haves, those that are like by the court, and the have-nots, those who are not by the court, right? Those by the court can like hear the action, hear people, you know, the squeak of the sneakers, they can uh, almost like feel the sweat coming off the players. I mean, like they're in the moment, you know. And so we start kind of discussing how cool would it be if we weren't in the 400 section, but maybe we're like in the 300 section, you know. And so we kind of we kind of look, and um, there's a bunch of 300 section places that are open. So we're like, you know, this one we can pretty much feign ignorance on, right? So like. If you go out and you come in, if you go up when you come in, your 400 section, if you go down when you come in, your 300 section, we could just go down and then if anyone says, hey, like those are, oh, we went the wrong direction. I totally, totally get it. I'm sorry, we'll go back up to the 400, okay? And so we did. We slid down to the 300 and we're like, man, this is pretty cool. Um, and then we started thinking like, man, that 200 section would be would be pretty awesome, you know? There's like this dividing wall that's not allowing us to get there, but that'd be really cool if we could. And don't act like you never thought that, right? I mean, <laughs> this is not a, a new thought. And uh, so we're like kind of considering the implications of what it would mean to get to the 200 section when uh, together around the same time we noticed a common friend in the 100 section. And we also noticed that common friend had some seats next to him that were not occupied. So we called said friend and said, hey, um, you're in the 100 section. I bet that's really cool. And uh, he's like, oh, it's amazing. And it also seems like there's some people that aren't sitting there. Oh, yeah, nobody's come in the whole game so far. Okay, well, we'll be right down. We'll see you in a second. <laughs> so, and here, I don't want to give tips away, but here's the trick. So, like, when you... <laughs> When you go into that section, you obviously don't have a ticket for it, right? But if you see the people you know that are right there, be like, oh, yeah, man, we finally made it. This is awesome. We couldn't wait to get here. And then we just sat down right next to them. And we're hanging out in the 100 section. And let me tell you, the 100 section is pretty amazing. <laughs> like, you are, like, in the action. In fact, I think it was Cincinnati, Ohio, the University of Cincinnati that was playing. And one of my friends loves Cincinnati. It's like his favorite team. And so I took a picture. And literally, it's like the guy's like right there. We were like 20 rows up. And I sent it to him. And he's like, I can't even believe you got those seats. And I was like, I can't either. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, was, it was amazing, right? And I thought, man, it can't get any better than this. Until like I glanced up and I saw the sweets, you know? <laughs> like there's sweets. They have like... Full screen TVs and couches and food. And, and I'm like, man, the hundreds are amazing. But like the suites, that's pretty incredible. And so we're there. It's about a quarter in. And I, I look back to the suites longingly one more time, just going, oh, man, that's so cool. And I spot a friend. <laughs> yeah, in the suite. And so uh, we called a friend, and we're like, hey, we're down here. Check us out. You know, you're up there. That's really cool. And he says, 
you guys should come up and hang out with us. I'm like, no, okay, we'll be right up. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so we, uh, we all kind of run up and knock on the door. We're in. Next thing you know, we're like in the suite, eating nachos, sipping on drinks, watching the big screen. Other games are going. We're like looking out over everybody going, oh, my word. And in that moment, I did not think this, but I do now. God was just breaking down the walls of hostility between those that were have-nots <laughs> and those that were haves, right? Like, there were all this division. The 400 people can't get to the 300, the 300 not to the 2, 2 to 1, 1 to sweet, and now we're in the moment, and we're loving it. And then friendship that kind of broke down the dividing walls, right? But in the case of the church, it's Jesus. That any division you think you have with someone else has been obliterated. Anything that makes you a have and them a have not, anything that is vice versa, it's gone. That in Christ, all are one. He says he's broken down the dividing hostility between people, Jews and Gentiles, and in this case, all people are now one humanity. One new humanity. In fact, God cares nothing about our man-made divisions and groups and is not interested in our self-righteous, hair-splitting, and religious man-made formulas and organizations. He wants you to recognize the unity of the body. Jesus gave himself for oneness. He gave himself for unity, for us to be together. Which leads us to our third word, which is temple. What you see in the text is he says, consequently, or so then, so he's described all this stuff. He's described that you were once a people far off. You were once a people that didn't have God. You, were, uh, you had a dividing wall. All that's been broken down. You've been redeemed. You're one in Christ. You have all this unity. And then he says, so then, or consequently, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now you have uh, two main things happening at once here. First of all, you have these intensifying, intimate kind of descriptions or metaphors of the church. That you're the citizenship of a kingdom, that you're members of a family, that you're one holy temple, and each of them becomes more intimate, more real, more close. But at the same time, uh, you see that Paul's describing the temple. He says the temple is together and it's holy and it's a dwelling place. Right away you see this idea of togetherness. Being joined together is the phrase, or being built together. There's an emphasis on the idea of togetherness. Christianity, from the very beginning, existed as a corporate reality, as a community. To be Christian meant just to belong to the community. Nobody could be a Christian by himself or herself as an isolated individual, but only together with the brethren in a togetherness with them. See, the whole concept of new community, the whole concept of the church, should stand on the idea of togetherness. That we are together. That we are unified. That we are one. That we are created for community and it finds its truest expression in the church. 
that there is this something unique happening. And again, you notice that the work of Jesus, right? That we're being joined together. We're being built together. It's not our own action. It's not what we're doing. It's not uh, this unique thing we're figuring out how to make happen. But God is doing it on our behalf. And at the center of the church is this togetherness. The second thing he describes is that we're holy. He says that we're growing into the holy temple of the Lord. Now, you've uh, probably heard the phrase, uh, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy, or be holy because I am holy. I assume if you've grown up in the church, you've heard that phrase, right? And I'm also going to make an assumption, and it could be a wrong assumption, that when you think of that phrase, certain things come to mind. And I'm going to guess that what comes to mind is the word obedience, What comes to mind is to be good, to avoid sin, uh, some sort of morality, right? If you do these things, you'll be holy as God is holy. If you avoid these things, you'll be holy as God is holy. Now, I'm sure you also know that that phrase kind of showed up first in the book of Leviticus, right? And he says, in the book of Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. And then he goes on to describe all kinds of things that are holy. And if you were to go back into Leviticus and look, you'll notice that he says tables are holy. And he says pots are holy. And uh, utensils are holy. And lampstands are holy, right? He's describing all these holy things. And it's easy for us at the beginning to go, oh, well, yeah, lampstands, they got to be holy too, just like we have to be holy. Except, like, how do you do that, right? How does a lampstand become more morally holy? Or how does a pot become, like, immoral of some sort, right? Like, I can't believe the pot did that, because now it's not holy, right? (laughs) Like, it's absurd when we talk about it that way, right? It just, it, it feels ridiculous. Because holy, in the Hebrew, really means this idea of set apart, right? You're set apart. Different, unique. So... It doesn't mean that the pot is holy because of its actions. The pot is holy because it's been set apart for God's exclusive use. God is saying, I've declared this table holy because it's for me. It's set apart. It's different. It's different than all the other tables. I picked this table, right? It's a set apartness. So what makes a table holy? The answer is it belongs to God. What makes you holy? The answer is you belong to God, right? That you have been set apart for the exclusive use by God. What makes you holy is not that you said ten Hail Marys and avoided certain food during Lent. What makes you holy is not that you uh, avoided looking at certain things and instead, you know, read your Bible longer. That's not what holiness is about. Prior to any consideration in the, in the, the, the Bible about the idea of holiness being tied to morality, it was always tied to being set apart into relationship with God, first and foremost. Right? So that you're set apart, that you're chosen, and then out of that, then you, based on knowing that you're set apart, you live a certain way. Right? It's not to say that there's no morality involved in holiness, it's to say that first and foremost, before you were ever told to be good, you were called to be holy. Set apart, belonging to God, unique. And unless we understand that, we come into this trap of believing that holiness is actually morality in some way. And he comes to our third and final point. 
And he says, you're a dwelling place. In him you were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And the final way we're described is a dwelling place. Typically when we think of we think of a place where. Okay, so the church is a place where we gather, where we meet, where you have services, where you pray. It's a place where. Rather than the church is a people who. Right? We are a people who. We're a people who do certain things. We're a people who live certain ways. We're a people that are holy. We are a people that are together. Those are the definers of who we are. The church is not a place where it's a people who. And that's so, so important. And the shocking part of this passage, the passage, as you read it, the thing you should be kind of like most shocked by is this. That the Scripture is announcing that the church's potential as a dwelling place for God depends on its... It depends on it being joined together. That's shocking. It's not saying that God comes and sits in a tabernacle or that He comes and He's a part of the temple like it used to be. There's no like, hey, we got a building downtown and now He's going to come dwell in it. Right? The whole point is He makes Himself present and known and you see Him alive and active and dwelling when community is together. When people of difference are present together, that's when God shows up. If there's ever a feeling like, man, I just don't know if I sense God around here, maybe it's because we haven't imagined what the church looks like in all of its diversity. What would it look like for us to be a community where people live together in hostility, people live together that are, should be completely divided on everything, and yet you see this beautiful thing happen and you go, Oh, God must be dwelling there. The Spirit must be present. That when people have so little in common and yet love one another so deeply, you have to go, what is happening here? McKnight describes it this way, but transcending differences in Christ does not mean eradicating differences. Eradicating differences is what happens when you're tempted toward uniformity. Getting a new mind and living in the Spirit means we transcend our differences while remaining different as we live with one another. I love this phrase. Our difference is not eliminated, for difference is the vitality of our fellowship. Right? We should be aspiring to be a place that exists simply because of the gospel. And we should be aspiring to be a place where relationships are so obviously supernatural that it declares the wonder and the imagination of the Spirit. To be that kind of place, to, to wonder why God shows up and then to look around and go, it's because we're a bunch of different kinds of people, unique and peculiar, and yet we're somehow together. And in that togetherness, there's unity. And so this morning, today was a call really to do nothing. You don't leave here and go, oh man, I need to work on that. Nope, none of it. You don't leave here and go, man, if I was really better at these things, right? Today is just a call for you to remember that you are in Christ, that we are a community in Jesus, that we're together, that we're holy, and when we look like that, we are a dwelling place. Let's pray.